Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to the Raptors Over Everything podcast. I'm your host, William Liu. I'm joined uh, on this episode to talk in depth about Fred Van Vliet and Pascal Siakam. Uh, with Blake Murphy. You first of all, Blake, you, you have the honor of being the first ever guest of this pod. Really? Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. Damn, I'm honored. I had to I had to start from the bottom and move to the top. Wow. <laughs> wow. After me, uh, where does it go from here? You get Wolstad <laughs> and then Lewenberg and then Doug. Yeah, I've got to work my way up to Doug. You know. <laughs> yeah, he'll have a book to promote soon. So. Um. So yeah, Blake, how you doing, man? How you doing? Uh, this is the question I gotta ask everybody. Are you uh, holding up okay? Everything like that? Yeah, man. I think like you know, obviously there are there are bad days and there are lulls in the energy or the motivation or optimism or whatever. But in relative terms, like I'm healthy, I'm still employed, my family's healthy. So trying to maintain that perspective above everything else and just try to try to stay occupied, keep trying to come up with this content. Mm. Yeah, I was going to say, I didn't have time to read it yet, because I've, I've been spending basically the last two days looking just at Fred Van Vliet and Pascal Siakam stories for this podcast, but uh, you just dropped a, a whole love ballot for um, Jose Calderon. Yeah, man. If I'm not mistaken, didn't you name your dog after Jose Calderon? Yeah. Um, it okay. was like kind of like Jose Calderon and Jose Batista. Like, Calderon oh, was yeah, like yeah. wrapping okay. up, and Batista was coming up, and it was just kind of a good confluence of factors. But yeah, yeah. Um, you know, they, they had, like, sent around a thing that was like, hey, this, you know, this week we want a bunch of athletic writers to highlight their favorite players or the stories about their favorite players or whatever. And, like, if I'm being, like, 100% honest, like, Lowry is the guy that I've enjoyed the most as a Raptor fan over the years. But I had, like, a pretty good attachment to Calderon because right around the time he was coming up, I found out that I have, like, a Spanish grandfather that I didn't know about. And I'm, like, a chunk Spanish Um so and yeah. that was like kind of right as my Raptor fandom was picking up too. So he'll always uh, be he'll after, always be my guy. After you found out about these uh, <coughs> this uh, your ancestry results, did uh, Herbie start pronouncing your name differently, or were you yeah. uh, Blaquet Murphy? Yeah. After this, no, we we <laughs> changed the. I'll go back to using Edward, and it'll be Eduardo instead. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. I'll use my uh, my maternal grandfather's last name, Marquez. Oh, whoa! Yeah. All right. Damn. We'll do a All full right. rebrand. Yeah, I can't wait, man. If good, if wait. Marcus all resigns long term, I'll I'll do this and I'll be his guy. Yeah, they're gonna give you the uh, what the Christopher Columbus treatment. Ooh. Just turning an Italian man straight up into a. Anyway, um, <laughs> so we're gonna talk about Fred and Pascal. I did a podcast last week uh, that was focused a lot on Kyle. It ran really long. Uh, shout out Iman for helping me out with that. Um, and my idea was sort of to do the same thing with Fred and Pascal because they've also had a really good career. But there's a bit of news item that I want to get to before we talk uh, first about Fred and then about Pascal. Um, so over the weekend, there was a report that came out from Woj that the Bulls are looking to hire. It's actually not entirely clear what the role is, um, but basically they want a new decision maker to replace uh, the Gar Pax situation. And uh, apparently 
Bobby Webster was among four main candidates that the Bulls had um, identified as someone who could target. Now, right before coming onto the show, um, Michael Grange of Sportsnet dropped a report saying that the Raptors are most likely going to tell the Bulls to um, not F off, but just like, look, this is not a good time. Yeah, uh, and, seriously. Well, I, first off, not a good time for anything, all right? <laughs> but second of all, not a good time because there's also the uncertainty with Masai's contract. And uh, in that Grange report, uh, he also notes that Masai apparently had some preliminary conversations in February uh, with MLSC about sort of uh, an extension. But uh, apparently Larry Tannenbaum apparently had surgery and then George Cope was out of the country. And so uh, those conversations kind of ended there for that, uh, the time being. Right now, everybody's contract ends in 2021. Uh, and to me, I think it'd be you can't let Bobby go if you don't have Masai sort of locked in. What are your thoughts on this situation? Yeah, let me just say, first of all, with respect to Granger's report about Masai's negotiations, color me just shocked that as all this stuff about Masai not having an extension in place got leaked, then suddenly MLSE came to the table. It's, uh, mm. it's crazy how that whole cycle works in that exact order, and I can't at all tell who was leaking that information now. Wow. Uh, certainly not. But no, I think you're I think you're right. You know, I think first of all, for anyone who doesn't know, this is a situation where um, the Raptors don't have to grant the Bulls permission necessarily. There are reasons sometimes an organization would want to. You know, you want a good reputation around the league as someone who treats their employees well and if there's an opportunity for promotion, you kinda let them go. Uh, shortly after Jeff Weltman became the GM and Masai elevated to president, uh, the magic obviously came calling. They offered Weltman the president position, so that's a that's a promotion, uh, not a lateral move. And the Magic had to pay a second round pick to kind of make that happen. I'd imagine that you know if Webster came to the Raptors and was like, "Look, the Bulls are offering me the presidency, and I'd like out of my deal one year early." It would be a si- similar situation where you know it sucks, but send some picks our way to, to make it worthwhile. You know, I don't know if you get that top eight, top 10 pick the Bulls are looking at for, for the 2020 draft, but you might get something back. But I don't know if it'll even get that far. You know, like, I think Webster's a guy who is ready to run his own shop. I'm incredibly, you know, I don't know what the word is for him, for for it, but, you know, I think he's really smart, and I think he, he's ready to run his own shop. I think the Bulls would be a fun challenge for an exec because even though the organization's been messy, it's not quite as bad as like a Knicks situation. It's still a pretty big market and, you know, one of those things where, hey, if you help fix the Bulls, your legacy is pretty bulletproof at that point. Um, you know, they're uh, they're a little on the cheap side, but that might suit Bobby too since he's like a salary cap loophole kind of guy and cut like $18 million from the Raptors' luxury <laughs> tax bill while adding for the championship team last year. So maybe yep. that's a challenge he likes. Um, but no, I don't think, you know, I'd, I'd need to see more smoke before I got too worried about this. The list of people that the Bulls leaked that they were um, interested in interviewing was basically four of the most well-respected lieutenants around the NBA. So basically the Bulls put out there that we want to hire the best person. So I think, you know, you you have an idea where that's coming from and that they're trying to set a tone as they begin this search. Uh, But yeah, I would need things to pick up a little bit more before I get too worried about uh, Webster going, both because the year left on his contract and because the, the weird timing and everything here. Um, you know, it is an interesting question. Longer term, would, you know, say MLSE got a, an extension done with Masai right now and the Bulls offered Bobby full control on the president role, 
you know, does he go then? Because that's a that's a good challenge and that's a chance to run his own shop. And if you know Ujiri's around longer term, maybe he doesn't get that here. Uh, but that's I, th- I think a couple steps past where we're at right now. Yeah, for sure. Uh, you know, looking ahead, just looking ahead, strictly speaking, obviously, we've already talked about the situation. Um, just looking ahead, though, if the Raptors were to lose Bobby one day, because it does seem like, as you mentioned, you know, he's ready to take the next step. He's one of the most highly regarded. Um, I think he's already GM, but I mean, like, you know, nowadays, I guess president is above GM. So, um, you know, he's already one of the most highly regarded guys. And even besides, has talked about how, you look, Bobby's, he's going to run a team one day. Oh, yeah. Um, and, and if, you know, in that situation, if that does come and Masai is still here, what does a potential succession plan look like? Well, look, for as fond as I am of Webster, you know, I think that what has happened during this run is like, obviously, there is just a world of credit to go around for everyone in the Raptors organization, right? They have a really deep front office, and that's a huge part of their strength. Uh, but Dan Tolzman, like you, you know that I'm going to say this, Dan Tolzman does not get enough love i don't think for his role in this you know not only was he kind of the first person in charge of the 905 and setting that whole system up and making sure it was a cohesive thing with the nba raptors which we're obviously going to talk about a lot today talking about fred and pascal you know tolzman's one of their top scouting guys and one of their top kind of talent identification guys in addition to being a player development guy um you know he's someone who a terrence davis is someone he was high at a fred van vliet is someone he was really high on so i think you know, Tolzman has been in the AGM role a couple years now. He's been in the front office a while. He has, obviously, a, a relationship with Masai dating back to Denver. I think if Bobby were to go, that would probably be the move. Pr- promote from within and then just make sure, you know, you're you're working aggressively to, to backfill that spot somewhere in the organization. You know, I think there are a couple people under Tolzman who would then slide up wrong, whether that's Chad Sanders or Isaac Lax or maybe um, Teresa Rash or Shelby Weaver take on more on the um, front office side instead of the operation side. Um, you know, there are more people in place in the organization. But I think, you know, the immediate move would be Tolzman to GM. And I'm honestly a little surprised that as we've started to hear rumblings about Webster and there's obviously the Ujiri stuff, I'm pretty surprised that that hasn't extended down as far as Tolzman yet, who would conceivably be easier to poach because you'd be poaching him for a promotion and then, you know, the Raptors might be a little more willing to play ball on something like that. Last summer, I remember being pretty surprised that the Suns, uh, Tolzman is an Arizona guy, I was surprised that he wasn't a name that came up in their search. So, um, you know, that's another guy within the organization that's been around through this entire run and I think is probably ready to, to bite off a little bit more, um, you know, not to the same level of Webster in terms of being a president, running your own shop, but I think he could probably step into that GM role if it came to that. All right. Well, I mean, that's reassuring. And look, this is, is very fitting with the theme of this podcast, which is about development. Like, um, you know, there's a pipeline for everything. With yeah. The and um, so... Moving over to Fred and Pascal. Um, first of all, first off, the two of them come into the draft together, 2016. Now, obviously, Fred, who's the guy we're going to talk about first, goes undrafted. Um, I mean, this story's been told many times, but I, I think it's worth revisiting because I think, you know, just going undrafted and stuff like that, it's like, you know, you go undrafted, but it, it, you do have some options. Like, you know, Fred did have some you know, second round offers. But the thing is, he would have had to play in the G, well, not even the G League, the D League at the time. He would have made like, what, 20K uh, a year to play in the D League and the chances weren't good. So he decides to bet on himself famously. Um, and, you know, Fred even has this video, which is now infamous, um, 
where he had this draft party, he had everyone around, and of course he goes undrafted. And he has to go up on stage and speak to all his friends and family after this sort of kind of a gut-wrenching development. And he says, quote, it wouldn't make sense with my story if I did get picked. I've been against the odds my whole life. Um, what were your first impressions of Fred? And, you know, you were actually you know, the one who actually broke the news that the Raptors had signed Fred and added him to uh, Summer League and also training camp. But. Yeah, I didn't, ha- I didn't break the news that they'd added him to Summer League. I think that was John Giovanni of, of Draft Express and now ESPN. But while I was at Summer League, um, yeah, I broke the news that the Raptors had signed him. And at that point, it was only 50000 guaranteed. Uh, and what it looked like at the time was like, DeLon, DeLon Wright hadn't gotten hurt yet. DeLon Wright, like, injured, had got, suffered that bad shoulder injury, like, right after that. But it looked like it was, you know, it looked like the standard, we're going to give you 50K to come try out for the team, and if you get cut, then we exhibit 10 you, right? Like, you get, you know, in this case, it, it wasn't that yet because that wasn't into the CBA yet, but it's effectively the same thing as, we're going to exhibit 10 you, you get that $50,000 bonus if you stay with the 905 long enough. It's the same thing they, they've done with, um, you know, a Malcolm Miller in the past or, or Tyler Ennis this year or whatever, um, just to try to, you know, sweeten the pot. Because like you said, at that point, I think it was 26K is what a, a D-League salary for, for a Van Bleet would have been like at that point. So, um, you know, my first impressions of him, he honestly didn't, he didn't blow me away in Summer League, but I think that that's part of what, I, I think that fits Van Bleet's story because like not a lot of his game has been, been the type of thing that blows you away and obviously he had a lot of success at wichita state and you like the shooting and you like the leadership and playmaking but it's not like this guy was like throwing down highlight real dunks or jumping out of the gym it's not like he's a guy who'd measure crazy well at the combine or anything like that um so i guess what stood out you know he was coming off the bench for the summer league team too because delon wright was starting uh yep. so he didn't really have a chance to to really show much flash but, like, what stood out to me is, like, the first couple times I interviewed him, because at Summer League, no one else is around. You can talk to these guys as long as you want. It just, like, he seemed so, like, mentally ready and so sure of himself. And having been around a couple Summer Leagues now, you don't get that a lot. Like, guys will try to tell you the right thing and speak in cliche. But Van Vliet, like, the attitude Van Vliet has now, where it's like, yeah, of course I could be a starter in the NBA. Or last year, where it was, of course I can come back from a shooting slump. Or before that, like, of course I can win a G League championship. That was there kind of right away. And it wasn't like a cockiness. It was just a, I know who I am and I know what I can do kind of thing. So, um, you know, on the court, he didn't really start to grab my attention until he kind of got with the 905 later on. Um, But the way, you know, his demeanor and the way he carries himself and the way that that kind of fits with where the Raptors were at that time, that was pretty obvious right out of the gate. Um, You know, I remember too that like, I think he was – so what I do every year is I always take everyone else's draft rankings because I don't get to watch as much NCAA basketball as I would need to to you know evaluate these picks in real time or these signings. But I take all the other boards from people I trust that, like, you know, obviously the Draft Express and the Sam Bassinis and, and things like that, but also, like, the guys at the Stepien, some of the, um, you know, NBA draft Twitter guys and stuff like that. And I think Van Vliet was fourth or fifth on the undrafted list based on, like, merging all those rankings together. So – um, I at least had eyes on him and was excited the Raptors got him. But yeah, in terms of first impressions, it took a little while for the for the on-court stuff. It took kind of until he got with the 905. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, credit Masai and Tolson because apparently the first dra- a phone call they made after the draft was completed was to Fred. Uh, and, and, you know, they wanted to get him. Uh, and, and, you know, apparently you're just looking into this story. Like, I, it seems like everyone has, like, a Fred Van Bleet story, you know what I mean, in the front office. Like, Bobby says, you know, him and his dad watched them at Wichita State. Like, 
2016 or 20, no, 2015 or something like that. And Masai and, 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 and Dan Tolzman apparently watched them in uh, the NCAA tournament. And it, it's just, it seems like everyone was really impressed by Fred at some point. And it's, it's, so it's good that they brought him in. But again, it, it's, I can't stress this enough, man. <laughs> he really had to beat some odds because yeah. coming into that year, uh, you know, it's customary for the Raptors to bring, um, what, 20 players into camp. And then you can, like, move a couple of contracts around, whatever. You want extra bodies for camp. Yep. He was fighting in 2016 in camp. With Jared Utoff, EJ Singler, Drew Crawford, Brady Heslip, and Yannick Marrera for that final yep. spot. And I think Fred probably had an inside edge because I think he was just better than these guys. But, like, still, like, that was the, they were all on the same level, uh, relatively speaking, in terms of that uncertainty. Um, yeah. You, yeah, you got I any actually, Jared Utoff, EJ Singler, <laughs> Drew Crawford, Brady Heslip, Yannick Marrera stories? What's going on? I uh, Actually, yeah, and it makes me realize that I misspoke earlier in saying that the Exhibit 10 thing wasn't in place yet. Because it must have been because uh, Singler and, and Yannick Marrera and maybe a couple of those other guys got Exhibit 10s that year. But Fred was just on the, the 50K guarantee, and then it would have been his choice from there. Um, I don't – so basically the way I remember it is coming into camp – I think I handicapped Fred as the favorite because DeLon was hurt, not necessarily because Fred was better than these guys, but, you know, Heslip was not... That was the year Heslip kind of tried to become a point guard with the 905. He wasn't there yet, and to enter the season without a third point guard would have been... At that time, it would have seemed weird. They The Raptors obviously got through all of 2019-2020 so far with only two point guards. Mm. Um, but at the time, it looked like Van Bleet was the favorite for that reason, um, you know, Utah was semi-interesting because he was a big who could shoot. Um, I always liked Drew Crawford as, like, if you if you were going to bring in, like, a Euro import to be, like, your 13th man, like a Lorenzo Brown type, he just had that kind of steadiness to him and was a good, like, off-court guy. Um, but none of these guys... And, like, EJ Singler I liked a lot because he was one of the first 905ers, but he didn't have... Like, he's not an NBA player. Um, and then Marrera was, like... the fringe G League starter so he it wasn't you know I think this was this really came down to could Van Vliet run with the opportunity being the favorite because they need a third point guard or like would Utah Singler Heslip or Crawford just shoot well enough and like play well enough in camp to take the spot and, and so you know I think I'm pretty sure I handicapped Van Vliet as the favorite like I do that thing every year where I handicap the last couple roster spots I'm pretty sure I had Van Vliet as the favorite um, and it was going to take, like, him to stumble or, like, one of these other guys to just blow the doors off to, to beat him out. Yeah. And, but, you know, so even though he wins the spot, though, he's, like, I mean, probably 15th, man. Like, he's the yeah. fourth-string point guard, man. <laughs> but don't forget, though, he, he had that, uh, it, the, the game they played, I want to say it was an Argentine team that came to the Air Canada oh, Center. Yeah, yeah. And San and, Lorenzo di Almagro. And him and Norm, like, both went off for 30 in, the, in this preseason game. And then yeah, it was yeah. like, then it was like, oh, like, there's a little juice to this guy, too. That was, actually, that was probably the first game where it was like, okay, like, this guy could be more than, like, you know, the rotating cast of third point guards around the NBA. It was like, oh, man, this guy's got some, some real juice to his game. Yeah, I remember that game vividly. It was, uh... <laughs> no, I do not remember that game vividly. I just, I remember that, I don't know, they, they played. Um, but still, you know, in his rookie year, Fred Van Lee, obviously undrafted, you know, he has to basically scrap and fight to get to this point. 
And even still, he's the four-string point guard between uh, Kyle Lowry, uh, Corey Joseph, and DeLon right now. As you mentioned, DeLon had that separated shoulder, so DeLon wasn't ready to go until, I think, end of the that calendar year, maybe December, maybe January around that time. And so Fred, again, was kind of the third-string point guard, but it, it, it's a difficult situation, right? Um, really, I don't remember any games really that much from his rookie year, at, at least in the NBA, um, except for February 3rd. Um, 2017. This is against Orlando. Do you remember this game? Because you and I actually watched this game together. Yeah, I do. That was the one you watched at my place before you had soccer, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, um, 15 points against Orlando. It was a season high. They lost to Orlando, but, you know, of course they did. <laughs> I remember, I don't remember, I don't have the dates in front of me, but I remember he had a couple, like, good games against Brooklyn where I think Kyle sat or Corey sat or something like right, that. Right, right. Uh, yeah. And it was like, you know, it wasn't 15 points, but it was like, okay, this guy, you know, playing full backup minutes looked pretty good. But yeah, I remember that Orlando game. You, uh, you and your sit in my living room with your shin guards and cleats and getting me to cut oh, yeah, orange yeah. slices up for you. <laughs> yeah, I was fully, I was fully dressed and ready to go because I think right after we did the pod, I, I like ran out of your apartment. And yeah, was, went Joe, straight was to Joe Cash at, our, at my place too for that one? Or was that uh, a different maybe. One? Okay. Yeah, maybe actually. That was a real convenient spot, too. Yeah, seriously. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, anyway, so the the most, I think, notable thing for Fred in his rookie year, obviously, is that he goes down to the D-League and he wins the championship there. First off, like, so he plays in the D-League for 16 games. What was the motivation for him going to the D-League and what did he work on when he was down there? What did he prove when he was down there? Yeah, I mean, the big thing, first of all, is, like, you need minutes, right? And the Raptors are mm-hmm. big on that, obviously. This year was kind of the exception because they've had so many injuries that they couldn't really afford to send guys down all the time. But the last couple of years, the whole point of the 905, first and foremost, was to get these guys playing. And you'll hear Nick, this was obviously a Dwayne Casey team, but you'll hear Nick Nurse talk about lots how he thinks the best way for guys to improve is to play. And even if that's not NBA minutes, the G League's a, a good place for that. So, um, you know, the first and foremost reason Fred was down there was to get reps in. And then, especially once DeLon was back, it was like, you know, what are the odds of this guy actually getting into an NBA game? He may as well be down there. Uh, and then I think there was an element, too, of because Van Vliet was such a steady hand right away. Like, like point guard play is so thin in the D, in the G League that, like, you get a lot of point guards who can fill it up. Like, you get a lot of Lorenzo Brown, Jordan Lloyd types, but you don't have a lot of, like, real point guards down there. So I think a guy like that, um, like Van Vliet, you get him down there and he can help, you know, a Pascal Siakam, a Jakob Pertl, and Axel Tupon, who who was a guy that they were still trying to develop at that point. Um, so there was, there was and Bruno, and Bruno was there too. Oh, of course, all about Bruno. He was um, a star back then. So I think there was some element of that. Uh, Van Vliet obviously had some things to, to work on on his game. You know, one of his biggest weaknesses there, which I don't think will surprise anyone to hear, is like he wasn't a very good finisher when he mm. went down there. And some of that was, you know, angles and some of that was physicality. Uh, but he needed to work on that part of his game and, and um, you know, some of the pick and roll stuff uh, that he's only still now at the NBA level ironing out in terms of over dribbling or, or not seeing the pocket pass initially, things like that. But for the most part, he went down there and like, he hit the ground running pretty well. Like, it was... I don't want to say he was, like, too good for that level because, like, his field goal percentage was only 41%. It's not like he was gangbusters or anything. But he went down, he hit 40% of his threes, and he was the smartest player on the floor from the minute he stepped foot. It was kind of, like... Like, it was pretty clear that he was ready for more and that, like, say the NBA didn't work out. Well, I don't 
think there would have been much point in him hanging around the G League. Like, he was just... He was a four-year college senior. He was very, very polished for a G League point guard. Yeah, exactly. Um, now, in in the actual G League championship itself... Um, so, if I if I remember this correctly, he they only they only sent Fred and Pascal down for the finals, the three game series in the finals. Is that correct, or no. did they play the whole playoffs? Pascal was there for I think all of it. Fred Fred only went down once they got down one game to nothing in the finals. Okay, okay. Fred Fred went down and they were like they were like go bring this home, man. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Oh, cause yeah, cause Kyle Lowry was also hurt. Um, for kind of what two and a half months right before the playoffs too, yeah. Um, but that was so the, I guess like, that was the wrist year. That was the wrist year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah he so also went golfing randomly, from late, whatever. From February twenty um, seventh through to the end of the season, Van Bleet played um, every Raptors game except for like seven or eight. Yeah. So he was playing pretty regularly. Yeah. So he uh, only he only went down once they got down uh, once they got down one nothing to Rio Grande Valley. That's correct. And they have to make a comeback. Um, yeah, Fred was actually low-key. Like, obviously, Pascal gets a lot of love for that G League Finals. Uh, obviously, Bruno had an incredible Game 3 uh, and recovered brilliantly because Game 1, obviously, unsavory stories that came out of that. <laughs> um, but, yeah, you know, Fred was pretty damn good. I was looking at the numbers, too. Um, you know, Pascal obviously had the Finals MVP, but Fred had 28-14 and 14 in Game 3. Yeah, and he had... They, they So, Game 2 was, like... When he went down there, it was like a gritty, like, I think neither team scored 90 points even. Uh, and Fred didn't shoot that well, but, like, managed the game well and, like, flirted with a triple-double. And then game three, and, and the series at the time was best two out of three, um, they were up, like, 20 in the third quarter. And Fred had 20 and 10 in the third quarter. What? Yeah, wow. he was just okay. like, like, <laughs> okay. like Bruno, that was the best game of Bruno's life to this day. Yeah, yeah. But, Definitely. like, Fred was the best player on the floor. And... Yeah, it's uh you know Pascal got the MVP because he put up like twenty and ten for the entire playoff run, but Fred Fred was the big factor in especially in Game Three as they like kind of pulled away. Wow! So just like uh, how Fred saved Kawhi in Game Six of the Finals. Yeah, it's funny though. I remember and like I don't know if you'd be happy with, with me saying this, but basically he he's told me since that like like we talked about like the Raptors were playing the Bucks in the first round of the playoffs. While that was going on, like that, that night of right, game yeah, three yeah. was game six of the Raptors, where they almost blew the game six in Milwaukee. That's uh, right. That's the, right. The closeout game, and mm. and he he told me he was basically like, yeah, they told me to like they they got one down one nothing, and they told me to go win the championship. It's like because they were like you know I'm Brady Hessop was an awesome G leaguer and an awesome Canada basketball player, but he's not like he's not a, a point guard, and that's what yeah, they yeah. had to do when when Van Vliet wasn't down there. I mean, it worked out, man. They they still closed out against Milwaukee, and then whatever. It's not like it would have affected the 2017 sweep uh, by LeBron. Um, so yeah, it, I think you know, in, in in overall, I think in his rookie year, this you know, just considering the circumstance that he came into, I, I think Fred actually did reasonably well in his rookie year. Again, he didn't play that much, but uh, he beat a lot of odds to even get to that position, and then to cap it off with the the, the D League title, it, it's it's pretty great. The next year, though, um, the bench mob year. So this is a year where Nick Nurse sort of takes over, uh, you know, in terms of just, like, redrawing the offense. Obviously, Dwayne is still coach, and he wins coach of the year. Um, but Nick Nurse does a lot of sort of revamping of the offense. And I feel like this is where it kind of really helped Fred in a way, just because um, it, was a, it was a year where there was just a lot more... Um, it, it went from being a very top-heavy team of, like, 
Kyle and DeMar have the ball in their hands all the time, and they run pick and roll, or they isolate, but that's generally how they're going to attack. To a team that looks a lot more like now, where there's a lot more triple handouts, a lot more spacing on the floor. There's stories about how Nick Nurse, apparently, they, they basically reinvented basketball and said corner <laughs> shots were worth like four points, and mid-range shots were worth like minus one or something like that. Like, they really drilled it into the, to get this modern style of play going. And I think it really helped Fred, because I think it really shifted... Um, the team into something that was able to leverage his skill set because you know not only did uh, shooting become a premium and of course Fed was a very good shooter even back then, um, but you know it, it really created a lot of situations where they needed two point guards on the floor a lot, and um, I think this is really where Fred really emerged. It was the second year because at the start of the year we weren't even sure what his role was going to be, but at the end of the year he was third in six man of the year voting. Uh, what do you remember about Fred in that bench mob year? Yeah, it's, you know, I think your point about how the offense changed and them running two point guards together a lot of the time is an important one. Because especially at that point in his development, like he kind of needed that second point guard out there. And I th- I remember talking a lot at those times about it's great to have two point guards, but like it probably makes more sense once things grind down to the half court to actually have the ball in DeLon's hands because Fred's such a good floor spacer 41.4% on threes that year Uh, and him and DeLon just like always played so well off of each other at both ends of the floor Um, you know obviously Fred did a lot and came a long way that season Um, I think the thing the big kind of turning point for me with Fred that year was like because that was the first time he had a sample against actual NBA players like you know it's one thing to be a ball hound in the G League when you're playing against G League point guards. It's another when you play 1,500 minutes in the NBA, and not only are you surviving at five foot eleven on defense, you're like really, really good defensively. And those mm. bench mob units were, you know, it's not like CJ Miles was an awesome defender at that point, and none of those guys was like, you know, Pascal was still a little kind of frenetic on defense, and yeah. Pirtle could protect the rim, but he wasn't quite what he is yet. But those foul prone. Those, those, yeah, foul prone. And those groups, though, were, you know, really solid. We remember joking all the time about, like, how they go on these five-minute-long, like, 4-0 runs. But Fred was a huge <laughs> part of that defensively. So I think that's yeah. that's kind of when it started to click that the defense could carry over um, as well. Obviously, offensively, he still had some of the, the limitations in terms of, of his finishing and his ability to, to create one-on-one against better defenders and stuff. Um, but, you know, him as a co-point guard and then showing that even at his size, he'd be able to survive as a co-point guard was really important, especially heading into, you know, a free agent year with DeLon and uh, DeLon's status kind of up in the air, too. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, defensively, the one memory I had from that season for Fred was there was that game in March where it was in uh, Scotiabank. And the Houston Rockets were in town. I think they had won 17 straight or something dumb like that. Like, they were really clipping that. Chris Paul, James Harden, Rockets team, with Clint Capella. There was something like, yeah, it was like when the three of those guys played together, they were just, like, unbeatable, apparently. Um, and there was that at the start of the fourth quarter. It was a close game. Raptors were playing really well. And Fred was on there because, you know, that's when the bench was really shining. It was the start of the fourth quarter. And Fred just, like, pressured the hell out of Chris Paul and forced him into, like, two turnovers um, and it reminded me of this quote that Fred said at the time. I think he told uh, someone of Ice Sports. It was either you or Alex. Um, but he said, quote, people were probably like, who the fuck is this kid coming into the game, picking us up full court? <laughs> I don't even look like an NBA player to most guys, which I thought that was that was a really good, uh, you know, just I, I think it, it just 
especially with Chris Paul. Like, he's such a steady ball handler. He has one of the nicest handles pretty much in NBA history. And so for Fred to be able to hound him was kind of like a nice, you know, uh, just foretelling the fact that, yeah, one day he's going to guard Steph Curry in the finals and win. Yeah. I think there's a nice, like, not, not symmetry is not the word, but, like, Chris Paul is a guy who, obviously he was a very high draft pick and he's going to be a Hall of Famer and stuff, but, like, he's a, he's been a little underappreciated and I think it's because so much of his game lies in, like, the cerebral aspect. So for, mm-hmm. like, Van Vliet to come up with, a huge strip against a guy like that, especially, um, was like a good kind of signifier, I guess. It may, it's probably one of these things that we're ascribing more meaning to after the fact. But, like, you know, if you can strip the brain genius Chris Paul in a big moment like that in a tight game against a red hot team, that probably says some good things about your defensive potential. Yeah, for sure. And that's the other thing that stood out for me for Fred uh, that season was just like he started developing this reputation for being really clutch. You know, like, over the course of the year, Dwayne Casey, who, generally speaking, um, you know, was more of a traditional coach, definitely preferred and leaned heavily on veterans. But, you know, even for Dwayne Casey, like, he started to really trust Fred um, as one of the fourth quarter guys. And, you know, every single fourth quarter, it was a question of whether they were going to go with OG, who was a rookie that year, or they were going to go with Fred um, and, and go a little bit smaller in the backcourt. But... um you know that, and and you know the the best example of this obviously was that Pistons game where Demar had, I mean, yo, Demar had the best dunk. I think <laughs> it, it, you know, I mean, outside of Vince, probably like the best dunk in a Raptor uniform. Um, you know, on Anthony Tolliver, but then, but like you know, that, it, and that might even like top the in-game Vince. Like, obviously, Vince's dunk contest and his USA basketball yeah. ones, but I don't. I'm trying to think of one that was that devastating in-game. I was going to say, you don't really see a lot of dunks to force OT, like clutch dunks. You know what I mean? Yeah. That was, basically uh, just DeMar. Poor Anthony Tolliver, man. Bro. It's like, and, and Anthony Tolliver <laughs> every year now yep. getting, like, attached to the Raptors in buyout, in buyout rumors. It's like, man, you, you can't come back. You, you can't do that. Yeah, no, he's just going to have constant PTSD playing on the Raptors. Um, yeah, I mean... Man, I honestly, I wanted, I wanted him too, just because I felt like Anthony Tolliver was always like, you know, a really diet version of Patrick Patterson, you know, kind of that like power forward, can space the floor a little bit, you know, made some heads up play, unselfish, but realistically, yeah. what are we doing? We don't has need an open tab at EFS, yeah. Well, okay. <laughs> um, but yeah, Fred in overtime in that game because Demar dunked it, 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 uh, it, it forced OT, but in overtime, um, Demar had the exact same play. Drives all the way down the length of the floor. Was pretty much going to dunk it again. But this time he kicks it out to Fred, who was in the corner. Um, and Fred hits the shot. The crazy thing is Fred was, I think, 0 of 10 in that game. And still, despite the fact he was 0 of 10, he played a lot of the fourth quarter. He plays overtime. And then he hits the game-winning shot. And this is actually something DeMar and Fred talked about in their IG story. Um, or in their IG Live very recently. Was that... They told the story. They were like, DeMar was telling him apparently throughout the game, like, yo, you know, just keep shooting that thing. Like, I trust you. You know what I mean? And for a second-year guy to get that kind of trust was kind of unbelievable. And that's why it was super devastating that um, on game 82 of the season in Miami, uh, Fred Van Lee oh gets hurt. Oh, my God. Uh, he runs into Bam Adebayo on a screen just guarding some uh, just random play. It wasn't dirty, but whatever. It's Miami Heat basketball. Uh, and Fred separates... I think what he separated his shoulder or something like that and he didn't really play at all in the washington series until game six and he was actually great in that one yeah but. so what he tried to do was that was i don't i mean it's far enough away now that it's not a big deal and i reported some of this at the time but 
his timeline after that shoulder injury was much longer than anyone let on. And he yeah. tried to come back in game two, and he played three minutes against the Wizards, and he just, like, obviously didn't have it, and then he didn't come back until game six. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, mm-hmm. like, even in that Cavs series was just, like, not all the way... He was fine. He shot shot the ball okay. Um, but he, like, clearly wasn't the same guy. And they obviously, at that point, like, his minutes had increased every month of the season pretty much. And at that point, they needed, like, 25 minutes a game of six-man-of-the-year Fred Van Bleed, And that shoulder kind of sapped him of that. And I remember, like, like he had to miss, like, a... Not miss, because it was the offseason, but, like, he had to shut it down for, like, a pretty long time after after that, too. Like, so... As much as, you know, he didn't play super well throughout the playoffs, like, the fact that he gutted that out and was playing at all was pretty remarkable. Yeah, exactly. And especially in Game 6, because that was... Game 6 against Washington, whatever. It was a freaking 1-8 matchup. But still, it went six games. Because, you know, this is the Raptors. Uh, and, you know, Fred was, like, coming off of injury, but he still closed that fourth quarter ahead of DeMar. Like... DeMar ends up playing in that fourth quarter, but they really make this push at the start of the fourth quarter. Uh, and and I just remember Fred making a lot of Kyle Lowry-like kind of plays. Like, I, was, I remember reading back on what I wrote about this game. I was like, a lot of, like, plus-minus. And I'm like, yeah, this is Lowry-esque in a way. Um, yeah, because it would have been him and Kyle on Wall and Beal for most of that stretch, right? Yeah. Yeah, and exactly. And, and you need that defensive ability because... Yeah, that was a I mean, shout out Wall and Beal, man. They were they were really tough in that series, especially Beal and Mike um, Scott. Shout out Mike Scott. <laughs> oh God, don't don't even say the name, man, please. <laughs> yeah, no, I I really he's all time uh, Gerald Henderson Award winner. Um, <laughs> and then so after that year, this is 2018. Uh, Fred hits free agency. Um, the Raptors, you know, obviously they end up resigning him on a two year deal, and he's now on the last year of that two year deal, but. Um, you know, there was some uncertainty because I think if you were a team that was smart in the NBA, you would have targeted Fred VanVleet. Uh, he was relatively affordable. Um, the Raptors were kind of limited in terms of how much money they can give him. Uh, and, you know, I remember at the time Phoenix and maybe Utah were kind of candidates to uh, try to get Fred. Uh, but Fred ultimately resigns. What do you remember about just sort of like that negotiation process and, you know, his decision to come back to Toronto and Toronto's decision to keep him? Yeah, so I mean that was a that was going to be an interesting one because because he was only a two year RFA, um, you know he was subject to the arenas provision. So if a team wanted to go long term on him, they couldn't. So no one could offer more than the mid level for the first two years. Mm-hmm. But a team could have conceivably backloaded a deal, and then maybe the Raptors hesitate if if suddenly you're talking like four forty four instead of two eighteen or something like that. Maybe. Maybe the Raptors are a little hesitant because you got yeah the, the, the Tyler Johnson contract. Yeah, basically. Yeah. Um, so what I remember is the Utah thing was weird, just because like Utah's ability to get into cap space to do that would have been like I I think it might have I'd have to go back and look at their cap sheet, but like I think it would have maybe required the Raptors to play ball on a sign and trade or something. Phoenix was the interesting one because like mm-hmm. if you look at what they had then and where they've gone since, Fred Fred VanVleet on a like a four year deal would have been really smart. But of course <laughs> yep. they're the Suns, so they spent fifteen million dollars on Trevor Reza on a one year uh-huh. deal instead, so that they could trade him halfway through the season. Um, hey, and they then, got Kelly Uber. That's not bad. That's true, uh, but they. Yeah, one wave got to another, eh? Um, yeah. <laughs> wow. But, but, uh, <laughs> okay. Yeah, so the, the Phoenix was the one that, like, me as someone who wanted the Raptors to keep Van Bleed, that was the team I kind of had eyes on. 
mm-hmm. then once they signed Ariza, you know, I th- I remember them. I remember hearing that like they had basically told Van Vliet like, "Hey, we're still interested, but like we got to move some things around." And at that point, the Raptors came correct pretty much like moment number one with a two-year deal at the full amount that they could offer him. Mm-hmm. So, like, at that point, that, you know, if you're Van Vliet, that gets you into unrestricted free agency at age 26, which is pretty good. Obviously, he couldn't foresee this mess yep. coming. I mean, but, um, yeah. you know, on paper, it looked like that had been a pretty smart move because we were talking before the hiatus of, like, you know, hey, has Fred priced himself into, like, the 20 million plus range when you look at teams like Detroit and Chicago that need a, need a youngish point guard and have lots of cap space and stuff. So, um, it seemed like, you know, looking back at the time too but right now it looks like one of those deals that benefited both guys both sides fred got as much money as he could over a two-year deal and got to re-enter the market and the raptors got to you know not that you couldn't see that van vliet was going to be a really good player after 2017 2018 but you basically bought two more years to evaluate whether you wanted to pay him as the guy to hand the reins over when lowry's done yeah exactly it's a pretty it's, good it's, deal it was a perfect deal for both sides um and so last year, um, the championship season, just in the regular season, I felt like I wasn't that impressed by Fred. I don't know what it was. Maybe it was he was struggling at times with injuries or whatever. It was also that sort of battle with DeLon, right? Now, DeLon had a chance to sign an extension. He chose not to. Um, and I think that probably kind of sealed his fate a little bit. Um, but, yeah, it was kind of a battle at times. I preferred Fred to DeLon just because I, you know, I didn't really – I felt like – Fred had this ability to sort of really show up when games got really tough. And I appreciated that quality about it. Uh, that I felt like DeLon didn't have sometimes. But I don't know. I wasn't that impressed with Fred. And I remember, I mean, this, I, I, look, I'm just telling on myself at this point, but whatever. That's already been out there. But I remember when Jeremy Lin <laughs> was acquired by the Raptors at the trade deadline. I was like, yes, there we go. Finally, we have a backup point guard. <laughs> I'm like, yo, Fred is better than Jeremy, but like, honestly, I don't know, man. Fred was struggling so much that I was like, you know what, Jeremy might actually um, uh, be able to sort of step in and maybe steal some backup minutes. Of course, that never happened. That never happened. And as soon as that trade deadline game happened, um, you know, the Raptors had like seven players. Kawhi was resting for some odd reason, even though they only had seven players. And uh, Fred, you know, he had, I think he had a season high that game, 30 points against Atlanta in a win. Um but yeah, I don't know, man. I, it just what was going on in the regular season because it, it it wasn't that impressive. It wasn't the Fred we see t- uh, today, and it wasn't the Fred that we saw, you know, in the second half of the playoffs last year. Yeah, I mean, statistically, obviously the counting stats are a little better than his bench mob year, just because he played more. But statistically, like that was the worst of his three main seasons. His PR mm-hmm. was down. His true shooting percentage was down. He got to the rim less. He finished not still not. I mean, he's never finished well at the rim, um, but he finished particularly poorly at the rim and he was getting there less um so you know i think it's it's tough because i think you know for a lot of those guys that had the bench mob success you've got to adjust a little bit and you're trying to figure out how to expand your role and like fred was also going starter to bench and started to bench and like you said he dealt with a bunch of injuries himself he missed 18 games and there were probably you know another dozen where it wasn't clear if he was going to play until closer to game time and stuff so Mm -hmm. Um, you know, that's where some of the questions started to come in of, okay, could he actually be a full-time starter? Like, is like, can he hold up to that? And that, that's probably not fair in that year only because, like, obviously the shoulder thing was kind of a freak thing against Bam the year prior, and he had played 76 regular season games. But he dealt with some, back, some persistent back stuff and, and some ankle stuff and things like that. Um, but, no, I think, 
you know, the, the thing that we forget sometimes is like, young players don't develop in linear fashion all the time. Sometimes mm-hmm. you, and Siakam's a good, uh, a good example of that too. And we'll talk about, because even though season to season, he's kind of linearly progressed within those seasons, he's taken step back, steps back and stuff. So I think for Van Vliet, you know, you're going from playing a lot of your minutes with DeLon to playing a lot of your minutes alongside Kyle or Kawhi. Um, you know, you're sometimes leading the bench unit and sometimes you're kind of trying to slide into a fourth man role in the offense and then you know just the even just the fact that his three-point percentage was down a couple ticks mm-hmm. you know that means a lot for a guy who takes almost half of his shots from three-point range even though he was still really good um you know if, if half your shots are threes and your three-point percentage drops a couple percentage points that's going to be noticeable um but i think that's really it man he was adjusting mm-hmm. to different roles and, and sometimes guys don't you know improve step by step each year yeah, and, and last year was really strange, especially in the regular season, because like the bench just like didn't play well. Everyone off the bench kind of struggled. I don't and, know. Like, and I, like JV played well off the bench. That's about it. <laughs> and I think that that's that's kind of the tough counter sometimes to, you know, obviously Nick Nurse's strategy of changing the starting lineup a lot and being super flexible with groups that has real playoff implications and real playoff benefits because you have are familiar a lot of different ways and you're comfortable starting a bunch of different ways. And especially once you tighten the rotation down to like eight guys and you've played every iteration of those eight guys together, it's super valuable. But I think that when you look at, you know, what made the bench mob successful and what makes full bench units successful in general, a lot of it is that role consistency and role stability. Mm -hmm. So the flip side of changing your starters around all the time and having injuries and having guys in and out and making a mid season trade is that those guys don't really, you know, those young guys, playing in more narrowly defined roles don't really get to stay in those and get that same comfort level. So I think that was an adjustment for a lot of guys. Like OG didn't do super well off of the bench. It wasn't yep, a great Norman yep. Powell year. Yep. Um, a lot of guys struggled with that. Yeah, for sure. Uh, now, post-trade deadline, um, you know, I, I think Fred kind of plays a little bit better. He averages 13 and six, uh, you know, shoots 42% from three over that stretch. It looks a little bit better. Now, heading into the playoffs, though, <laughs> it was tough. Like, he was okay in game one against Orlando. Uh, you, you know, whatever. He scored more than zero points. So, definitely was not the worst point guard that day. But there was 14 straight games for Fred VanVleet where he scored under 10 points um, from game two of the Orlando series through game three of the Milwaukee series. Um, he was struggling really bad. And, he and shot 14% that- on threes over that stretch. <laughs> over 14 games. I don't understand it. Like, I, I actually don't understand it. For someone who's as inconsistent, whatever. You know, playoffs are tough, length, bad matchup. You know, James Ennis is out there blocking him, whatever. I get it. But, like, how how, how did his performance dip that much? Because it, it didn't make any sense that he was struggling that badly. Yeah, and I don't know. Because, like, sometimes, you know, we remember the Kyle Lowry shooting slumps where he was, like, famously getting shots up super late at night. And it was, like, yeah, yeah. it was clear that there was, like, a psychological component to that. But Van Vliet through all of this was basically just like, yeah, I'm not worried about it. I'll start hitting them eventually. Yep. And, like, I don't know if – like, have you ever watched Van Vliet shoot up close when he's warming up or whatever? And, like, he kind of spins the ball sideways off his thumb? Yep. yep. I wonder if, like, because he has – it's kind of like if a pitcher has a quirky delivery, it's easier to lose the feel on it. I wonder if maybe just because he lets his shot off weird, he can, like, lose the touch on it. But he ha- he's not, like, other than that stretch, he's never been, like, an especially inconsistent three-point shooter. Everyone's an inconsistent three-point shooter unless you're, like, Steph Curry. Um, but really, like, there's not a good explanation for why for, you know, over a month, this guy just Yo. shot threes, like, 
I don't know, like like sophomore Pascal Siakam, basically. Uh huh. Uh huh. Yeah, I don't have I don't have a good explanation for it, man. There's not a. You, man, I, not... I, I, I see the thing. Like, I never went so far as to say, look, maybe go with Jeremy Lin ahead of Fred. But you know, there were times where I was like, yo, Fred is really not cutting it. Norm's not really getting any run. You might as well put Norm in. Maybe try Norm at point guard. Like I was that desperate, and you know, obviously Fred had you know this story is again very well chronicled. But you know, he has this huge turning point. His second uh, child, his first son, Fred Junior, was born, and after that point, he was really good. Like he went from again fourteen straight games of under ten points to after uh, Fred Junior was born against you know, three games against no two games against Milwaukee. Well, three games against Milwaukee and six games against Golden State. He averages 14.7 points. He shoots 51% from the field. It's it's an incredible turnaround. But um, mostly I just want to tell this because, like, I remember sitting in those press conferences where Fred was talking about sort of after game five, they were asking him, like, yo, what's your life been like? Because, you know, you just had a second child in, in the middle of this playoffs. And you're in different cities. Like, what's going on? And Fred basically told the story where on a Monday he was in Toronto. He gets a phone call from his, his girlfriend, uh, you know, the, the water broke, all right? You got to come down. So he flies down to Rockford that afternoon. The baby comes out that night, 9.30. He's unable to get discharged that day. He takes a nap at just at the hospital. Can't be that accommodating. Um, he flies back to Toronto around 2 p.m. that game day. That was Tuesday. He gets a nap in before the game, and then he goes out, scores 13-6 and six in game four for the win. Then that night, they fly to Milwaukee before game five. Uh, when, when he got down to Milwaukee, he finally got to sleep. Right, he sits in a car. He drives to Rockford from Milwaukee, which is about an hour forty-five drive. Still, kind of a long drive. Uh, spends the night with his baby. Finally, they get discharged from the hospital. They got to do all these tests and stuff like that. And then he drives back to Milwaukee for Game Five, like basically the next day, and takes another nap. And then he hits seven threes. Seven threes. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense, man. Like, like I don't understand. Matt like, Moore I... still hasn't logged off over this. <laughs> yeah, I just put out a clip where Fred VanVleet. Remember uh, Game 6, um, Kyle Lowry crashed the uh, Fred Van Vliet press conference and asked Fred uh, how he feels to be a champion. I, I feel like uh, I feel like HP is not, not retweeting that one. Oh, man. Yeah. Um, that was crazy, though. I guess before Nuts. we talk about that specifically, though, what is what is the better Raptors no-sleep story? Fred Van Vliet game, what was it, Game 4, or mm-hmm. P.J. Tucker oh, after man. the deadline? <laughs> Oh man, what was that? Twenty five straight hours for PJ Tucker. Yo, yo, yeah. yo, PJ Tucker was talking with. Uh, he was just very hopped up. I don't know, man. He was just really hopped up. I've never seen a guy that more that intense. Um, I didn't remember that much of rookie PJ, so um, so I didn't remember sort of. I didn't know how he was going to be personality wise. And then when he came in and like he he bullies Isaiah Thomas, he like really locks him down, uh, which was a big deal at the time because Isaiah was having. Well, Celtics answer swore he was having an MVP season. Um, and then afterwards, he just says, like, yo, we're going to be a great defensive team. We're, once DeMar starts playing some defense, we're going to be a great defensive team. And I was like, yo, I love this guy. <laughs> He's like, yeah, me and Sarge don't know any of the plays. It's fine. It's like, well, it was uh, 2017. That was the last pound of the rock era. So, you know, just set a screen and wait in the corner for a three. That's about it. Yeah. That's, yeah. yeah. I don't good, know what good else. Good use of P.J. Tucker, man. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, Fred, I mean, yeah. So, you know, he has incredible moments, obviously, throughout the playoffs, especially um, the seven threes against uh, the Bucks. Like, And they needed every one of those threes, like every single one of those threes. 
Um, and of course, you know, he's pretty good in game six as well to close it out in, in Toronto. Um, and then really he, he, his, his time to shine was really in the finals where, um, he takes over for Danny Green, um, as the second half starter. Now they've actually talked about this, Danny and, uh, and, uh, Fred in, inside the green room after they won the championship and stuff, they talked about it. And Fred was basically like, yo, you know, I'm just pretending like my back hurts or whatever so you know i gotta i gotta stay warm <laughs> you can't you can't put me on the bench that was his excuse yeah. he said it in training camp too he said he finessed the starting spot yeah, exactly yeah so uh good job but honestly though he was he was really good and really the reason he, you know nick made that move is because they just needed someone to guard steph curry in the third quarter the warriors were so damn good last season in the third quarter steph was a big part of that and you just needed your best on-ball defender against Steph in that moment. That's really what it boiled down to. Yeah, that's pretty much it. And, like, you know, you can debate who the Raptors' best defender overall is or whatever, but when it comes to chasing guys off of screens and getting around them and Mm -hmm. kind, kind of denying ball on the perimeter, like, Fred's their best guy. And we saw little glimpses of that in that Washington Game 6 that we talked about, um, and you saw little bits of it you know, earlier in the the postseason with Redick and things like that too. Um, he's he's very good at that. Yeah. And that's, uh, you know, Steph obviously still got his shots off because he's Steph Curry. But even the luxury of like, we're only going to put one guy on Steph Curry is just a huge thing when, you know, he's surrounded by the guys he's surrounded by. Like, you know, I think people have overstated a little bit the injury situation of Golden State. But, yeah, like, yeah, they, they were certainly low on guys who could help Steph Curry space the floor, at least when Clay Thompson sat. Like, those those Steph on, Clay off minutes were a grind for the Warriors, and a lot of that's because of Fred. Yeah, exactly. A um, lot of that's also because, you know, Quinn Cook was, like, the Warriors' third best player, but... Bro, it was tough, man. <laughs> DeMarcus Cousins would go entire games, like, a lot of, like, two points... Alfonso McKinney, I, I mean, you know, Raptors 905 legend, of course, but, yeah. I mean, bro, uh, he was maybe the Raptors' third best player in the finals, I don't even know. <laughs> Every time I he mean, got a Kawhi, not, Kawhi got his, a foul, man. Yeah, it's not his fault that he got put one-on-one against Kawhi Leonard. It'd oh. be like, you know, it'd be like picking out any of the Raptors that had to guard LeBron one-on-one for three years and being like, yeah. well, that guy's the worst Raptor. It's like, no, he yeah. had to guard LeBron. That's, what are you going to yeah. do? Uh, and, of course, there's that famous clip of Steph Curry begging Sean Livingston for the switch <laughs> to guard Fred, which is so funny because Sean Livingston retired after that game. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, so, anyway, so Fred gets the finals MVP. Shout out to him. And then this season, you know, he... he, he Did you he just say the... Fred gets the finals MVP? He didn't get the finals he, MVP. He got a he finals got... MVP vote. All right. Yeah, he got one. Let's not... But I feel like you should get, like, some sort of certificate or something in your house. Like, a small plaque. Maybe not, like, a whole trophy, but, like, you know, like a... Like a... You could put that on your LinkedIn, for example, for yeah. sure. Like, <laughs> Oh, yeah. Like, he's got the endorsement from Hubie Brown? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hubie Brown's like, yo, great on-ball defender. <laughs> Clutch shooter. And, of course, you know, in Game 6, like, in the fourth quarter, he scores 12 points, man. Like... If... Uh, yeah, Fred really brought that shit home. Um, yeah, it's and huge, that, man. Kyle opened it up, and then and then Fred kind of got it done. Yeah. And then so this year, he comes in. He earns the starting spot. It was a little strange to me that Nick Nurse declared right away, like, Fred's going to be my starter the whole year. Um, and, of course, Fred has missed some games, and that has allowed Norm to start. And Norm has obviously been really great in the starting role as well, in a different way, but still really great. Um, but if you just look at it all in the whole, like, Fred's had a like pretty damn good year. Like, I, you know... I, to you, like, has he proven to you this year that he's uh, a starting caliber point guard? I mean, this might sound dumb because he's literally started 48 games, but he's averaging 17.6 points, 6.6 assists, 1.9 steals, shooting 39% from three on seven attempts per game, 
for a great team, and he's great defensively. Is he a starter? Has he proven that to you? Yeah, I, I mean, I think he's proven that he's a starter. I don't know if he's proven he's like a high-end starter. I would still have some concerns about his scoring efficiency and like may, like less so than in years past, but his pick-and-roll operating is still like a work in progress, which it should be. He's a fourth-year player. He's only 26. Point guards mm-hmm. sometimes come along a little slowly because there's such a, a mental toll on that position. Uh, but, you know, you look, you look and like, he was below average for true shooting percentage, and he's only at like a 22% usage rate. Um, you know, still not a guy who can finish at the rim really well. He was shooting under 55% at the rim. Um, so, you know, I have, and, and then like shooting less than 20% in that floater range, the like three to 10 foot range. So, you know, for him to really reach that top level of starter, I'd want to see the finishing package continue to improve and some of the pick and roll passing. Um, but, yeah, I don't think there's any question that, especially if you're talking about the type of team that could try to poach this guy from, from Toronto in free agency, I don't think there's any question. He's played 36 minutes a game on, you know, a top three or four team in the league, and he's put up good numbers. And like you said, he's, you know, he probably had a good case to, to make second team all defense, uh, depending on what your appetite is for, like, missed games uh, and things like that. I guess, yeah, along with the finishing, the maybe the durability is a question just in terms right. of, of how much you you want to pay. Um, but yeah, like I don't I don't think there's any question that this guy can start and play a full-time role at a really good level in the NBA. Um, it's just, you know, when you're drawing those tiers of like, is he a top 10 point guard? Is he a top 20 mm-hmm. point guard? You know, that's where we still don't, you know, you still need to see the scoring efficiency come up just a little bit. Yeah. And of course, they've had different careers and, you know, Kyle obviously has made many jumps in his career, but... Just if you compare the at their same ages or even at the same experience, like Fred is ahead of where Kyle was. And of course, Kyle made multiple leaps to get to a level where he's where he is. But yeah, I mean, it's it's really impressive. It's really impressive. And, you know, I was going to ask you about free agency, but realistically with COVID going on, like there's yeah. so many questions with, in terms of just like basic finances that I... It's hard to predict any of these yeah. things, but... But we'll, I, do, we'll, I do just want to say, sorry, um, you mentioned like the Lowry comp. And I think, obviously, we we get into sometimes, you know, trying to... We stretch a little bit to fit these things because we would love for a guy like Van Vliet to follow along the same path as Lowry. But Mm -hmm. the thing within their profiles that is really encouraging to me is that it was Lowry's fifth season in the league when he started to finish at the rim well. And, you know, some of that was he became less of a drive-oriented point guard. Like, he just didn't go to the rim as much and he traded a lot of rim shots away for for a higher volume of threes but he also jumped from being a guy who hung in the low 50s as a finisher his first four seasons to a guy who could hang in the high 50s low 60s sometimes even higher um, so you know i don't some of that is probably the condition he worked himself into and picking up the smarts in terms of like angles and body in ball out all that stuff yeah. but i do think that it's at least a good data point to say that like you you're not stuck as a poor finisher four years into your career. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, and, yeah, so I was going to ask about free agency, but really, you know, there's too much uncertainty. So I will just agree that, yeah, look, who, Fred who was going to be one – he, he was going to be one of the top free agents on the market, uh, and he still will be. It's just we don't know the exact numbers without honestly seeing yeah, exactly. how long this like, is. We, we don't know how much the cap's going to drop. We don't know if they're, they're going to smooth it over a couple years or whatever. So yeah. there's not a, not a ton of point. Um, and then just to wrap up on Fred, uh, before we go talk on Pascal, uh, just a couple of nice quotes that I, th- I thought I found. Um, you know, this is from Kyle Lowry. Look what he did in college. 
Uh, and, and by the way, the Wichita State Shockers went 91 and 15 with Fred as a starter in three years. Uh, that that takes skill, that takes knowledge, that takes smarts. And then he's you know he's got here, and you could tell that he's a guy who watches basketball, knows basketball, and knows his job. He's smart as shit. He sees things from the same perspective as I do, and that's from Lowry, who you know we know that he's one of the most brilliant players in the NBA. And that's that's also something where if you read enough about Fred at every single level, his coaches will talk about how Fred was always a guy who coaches went to, to ask for his opinion on what he saw in the game because he sees the game at that level. And even Kyle and DeMar, you know, especially in that second year, but even at times in that first year, uh, you know, consulted Fred, which is just rare, you know? Um, he's just always yeah, had a great game sure. sense. It's like, and I think, you know, I talked about kind of his demeanor as far back as Summer League and stuff, and I think, you know, it's, it's obviously, it's more on the vets to bring the young guys along than the young guys to kind of force their way. But when you come in with an attitude like that and that level of intelligence and you kind of approach the, like, asking the vets the, the right way, I think, you know, having them in your corner and advocating you can really help your development. And the Raptors have done a good job of, you know, identifying guys that, that kind of fit that and can kind of carry that on. And it's, it's been awesome to see over the years um, like guy, Van Vliet and Norm too, really kind of take on a lot of that Kyle Demar leadership that they pass on and try to pass it on to the next round of guys. Yeah, it's perfect. It's really perfect. Um, Demar, speaking of Demar, he said, "Quote: Freddie is one of those teammates that will go down in my book as one of my favorites by his toughness and the way he carries himself as an individual. It speaks volumes and it shows in big moments. He's a tough little firecracker." Um, <laughs> Larry also said. Uh, you know, about Fred, he will be an all-star. Simple as that. I'm serious. He's going to be an all-star at some point, which, um, yeah, I I don't disagree. He's really had a great trajectory, and if he continues, if he makes one more leap, he's, he's there. He was honestly on borderline this year, but um, it's close. And yeah, I mean, this year would have required people to be like, oh, we appreciate defense. That's, a lot. That's a, a big lot. ask, yeah. Um, but still, it's, it's close enough, right? Like, his, his numbers aren't that far off, and... You know, we'll see. I mean, he's got to improve a couple of things, but it's definitely not out of the realm of possibility. Uh, yeah. Fred. And, like, I, point guards point guards develop slowly sometimes. And I, I'm not even saying that as, like, Van Bleed has developed slowly. He obviously hasn't. He's mm-hmm. a huge contributor on a championship team and a, and a very good regular season team this year. But, like, we also have to allow a little bit for, like, you know, he could figure some extra things out in a year five or year six. Yeah. I mean, listen, everyone hits a growth spread at 26. Just, uh, I'm not saying he's going to get bigger, but he wider, might, like... taller, but whatever. Yeah, maybe he learns how to use, throw his ass around in the paint. Hey, man, listen. <laughs> That's the difference right there between Kyle and Fred. Um, Fred also, by the way, I feel like he's really, um, you know, embodied a lot of what the Raptors represent. And he said this himself. He said, quote, it's not the glam stars. Uh, we got guys who had to get it the long way, who had to get it out of the mud, who had to get it against the grain. And we were a team... Full of them, coming from all different places, all walks of life, all different life stories to get to this point. But we got some talent. We got some talent for sure. And I think that's just, you know, he embodies the, the spirit of the team really well. And the last little quote that I got from Fred was from Steve Forbes, who's a coach at Wichita. Apparently he's friends with Nick Nurse. But uh, he said, quote, we're in the middle of a game and we're having a hard time guarding him. And, and this is uh, DeLon Wright that we're talking about. This is in college. And Fred came to me during a time and said, I want him. And he basically just shut his water off. I relayed that message to Nick Nurse. Uh, Nick and I are really good friends, and I relayed that story to them when they brought Fred to the Raptors. I told Nick, quote, if you give guys like him a chance, he'll beat them out. To go undrafted and then to go beat out a first-round pick, that's pretty hard to do, but I'm not surprised. 
Like, yeah, that's that's pretty much it, man. That's Fred. That's Fred. Um, okay, so we talked a lot about Fred. His story uh, is incredible. Um, one of the, well, I mean, his, you know, that rookie class. Obviously, Fred didn't come in and get drafted, but that same rookie class for the Raptors. Uh, just an incredible haul because the Raptors got Fred, they got Pascal, and they got Jakob Pertle. Pertle's obviously, you know, was part of that uh, Kawhi trade. But Pascal, let's move on to him. So 2016, um, I'm just going to ask you off the top, were you happy with the pick? Because it's 27 selection, the Raptors had a couple of options on the board. There's a lot of hype for guys like Scala Bussier. Deontay Davis was, I think, invited to the green room and slid to the second round. Um, were you happy the Raptors took Pascal? What was your reaction? So... I went back and checked out my draft night stuff from this, and I, Scal and Deontay Davis were the, the two guys that I was like, oh, these guys were still there. What, what's up? Mm-hmm. Um, but it was like the the text of what I wrote was pretty much like already at that point, I was like, ah, eh, we can't really doubt the Raptors. Like if they see something here, and that was probably, that year was probably the most I ever prepared for the draft because they had two first round picks and I was living a short walk to OVO. Whoa. So I was at, like every one of the pre-draft workouts except the one with pascal and Jakob, because that one was held in buffalo right Um, right, the secret one yeah yeah but so like i had i dug pretty deep but that was it was a good learning experience to go through that draft year and see where guys have gone since because i think it really hammered home for me the value of like the interview process and the like non on-court stuff Right, right um also like you know, maybe we shouldn't discount a guy putting up 20 and 10 getting double teams just because he's on a smaller school. Yeah. Um, but uh, so, you know, I wasn't I wasn't like thrilled with the pick. I really like Deontay Davis. Um, mm. it, yeah. Again, I without getting into specifics, uh, there is value in being able to talk to a player and interview them, it turns out, in terms of projecting them forward. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, not surprised in retrospect that the, the, they didn't go the Deontay Davis route, but that was kind of... It's funny, I, I also... Patrick McCaw was the guy that I wanted with that Oh, pick. wow. Yeah, I really So you were McCaw. original to Patrick McCaw's stand. Yeah, I really liked McCaw coming out of the draft. Um, but no, I was, uh, I was fine with it from a, like, okay, I, I trust the Raptors. Uh, at that point, too, like, because they had a year of the G League under their belt... I was like, okay, well, like, maybe this is, like, the, maybe we're going to see what this looks like, right? Like, you Mm -hmm. draft a longer-term guy and throw him in the G League. Let's see what that looks like. So, I was, like, pretty excited. Um, But, no, I wasn't, like, I wasn't, like, this is my guy. I think I had him ranked in the 40s or something like that. Right. Um, And then, but but by the time Summer League rolled around and I had, like, caught up on video and, like, got to talk to him once or twice, um, I wrote, like, that big feature on him for Sportsnet that year at Summer League, even though he only played 15 minutes. Um, you know, I think I think you started to see pretty quickly, uh, you know, even even more quickly than with Fred, you started to see that there was something here more than maybe just the energy guy. Yeah, but, you know, I did look into that Sportsnet article, and uh, one of your conclu- concluding thoughts was that, quote, nobody's asking Siakam to fill such big shoes right away, but there's a sense that he could help replace some of the spirit loss with the departure of Bismarck Biombo, if not some of the minutes as well. So, it wasn't that high of a bar, right? And I, I'm not signaling you out yeah. at all because I think I called him like an Alfred Camino type, and I think Forbes had had Pascal that pick rated as a D minus. So Dwayne Casey said Bo Outlaw was yep. his player comp, yep. and like Bo Outlaw was like a really good defender, but like also never averaged double digit points in his yep. career. Yeah, no, that's the thing. They're, look, listen, if the Raptors knew what Pascal Siakam was going to turn into, they would have never picked him 27th. They would have picked yeah, him ninth. 
It's the old Tom Brady or Draymond Green thing. If you really thought he was going to be that good, you wouldn't have waited yeah. until the seventh round for Brady. Or, like, I think Draymond was the Warriors' third pick in that draft. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It was uh, Harrison Barnes and Festus Azili. Ooh. Yeah. I mean, Festus Harrison was good Barnes. for... Well, yeah, Harrison Barnes, yeah. Shout out to him losing by 40 with the Raptors. That's not easy to do. <laughs> I'm not watching this 2K tournament, but... Uh, yeah, anyway. Damn. Um, yeah, Masai maybe himself... That's just, maybe that's just revenge. Oh, wow. Um, Yikes. Uh, yeah. Uh, no, he's got to keep that beard on for a little longer after losing my 40. Um, yeah, Masai said about Pascal, quote, I will tell you honestly, when I saw Pascal in Basketball Without Borders in 2012, I couldn't even tell you he was an NBA player. That's how incredible his story is. And, you know, that's, again, this is the story with all of these guys. It's just, it was an incredible, um, th- that 2017, or that 2016 draft year was just incredible that summer for them in terms of talent. So, Pascal joins the team. Rookie year, he ends up starting because Jared Sollinger, I think he gets hurt the, the first game, right? He, he like, broke his foot um, playing against Kevin Durant, and that was the debut of Durant with the Warriors. This was in Victoria where the Raptors holding training camp. Um, and, yeah, I, all I remember from that game, aside from Sollinger's injury, was that, yeah, I mean, Pascal Siakam had a possession where he guarded Kevin Durant one-on-one and blocked him at the rim. And I was like... Okay, all right, you got my attention. Forget this off rookie minute shit, all right? This guy's, this guy's pretty, not that bad. Um, and as a rookie, I thought he was actually okay. Like, he wasn't an effective player, but he had some skills. Like, yeah, definitely just incredible in transition. Uh, most of his points were hit-ahead passes from Kyle Lowry. And he had a little bit of a baseline jumper, and the jumper didn't look that bad. Um, and he didn't really have the range to shoot from three. He was only on the baseline, maybe 12, 15 feet, but... He had yeah, two. Playing st- that, he was playing that Rondé game in the offense, basically. Actually, though, that was really it. He was Rondé who could hit layups, and it was like, all right, it's not bad. <laughs> it's um, a big skill for Rondé. <laughs> uh, listen, if Rondé could hit layups, man, probably playing center for the, the Houston Rockets. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, you know, Pascal, it was not necessarily that exceptional rookie year. Like, you know, he he started because Sollinger was hurt, and you know, it, he just. It was clear that the Raptors had a lot of ambitions that year, and they were not going to actualize those ambitions with Pascal as a starter. That year, they end up trading for Serge and P.J. Tucker, so two power forwards. Um, well, I guess P.J. was a small forward at the time, but still, two power forwards um, at the deadline. And so, you know, it wasn't that memorable for, for Pascal, other than the, the D-League and, and the championship um, so I'll ask you the same question about you know Pascal as um, Pascal as I did about Fred. But what did Pascal work on in the D League, and what did he what did he show that he was capable of at that level? Yeah, I think you know the biggest contrast there was that what I th- thought I was seeing from Siakam over his thirty four starts before he kind of got pulled from the starting lineup was a guy who did some things well, but was really trying to fit his game to what the Raptors needed, mm. and that was coming with some complications, right? Like, he didn't always look comfortable. He looked a little like he didn't know his role in the offense. Even defensively, like, I think he had in his head that he's supposed to be this energy guy, and they have big things for him defensively. So he would be, like, scampering all over the place. And that was awesome sometimes, but also sometimes you were leaving guys, like, you were way out of position yep. and stuff. Um, but, obviously, that flashed a lot of potential. So... I thought the biggest change from the NBA to the G League was he went from a guy trying to figure out what his role was and fit his game to a role to just, like, being himself again. And one thing that Stackhouse always liked to do with the 905 was, like, he he loved running a post-oriented offense, which, coming from what Siakam was 
uh, at New Mexico State fit him really well. And then the big thing they did beyond just giving him more touches was they basically told him, if you come down with a defensive rebound, you don't need to find a point guard. Just go. Mm. And I think that that helped him start to build the confidence in his handle and the confidence that, you know, in transition, he didn't have to just, like, run out ahead of everyone and be a play finisher. He could initiate, too. Um, and, you know, you saw little glimpses of things like the defense sharpened up a little bit and he made a couple nice passes and he hit. The The funny thing is, is that I remember, like, people saying for a while, like, oh, he went down to the G League and, and like, he hit threes and, and that was like a sign of thing to come. He absolutely did not go down to the G League and hit threes. He uh, he was like seven for 25 or something like that oh, okay. in the G League. Um, but, no, it was mostly just, you know, it, they went from – you're trying to take this young raw prospect and fit him to a small box because that's what you need in like this make or break season to just being like, you know what, go down and be yourself and expand your game and and, like find out what you are. Don't, don't try to fit this narrow role, find out what your role is and where you're going to go. So I think, you know, I think that's been a credit of the Raptors entire player development system is that they kind of go into it with this open mind. A lot of the time in their summer programs and in, in the G league, is that you know you're not trying to develop Fred VanVleet to be a good third point guard or Pascal Siakam to be a good backup power forward. You're trying to develop these guys to see what they can become, and you you don't kind of put these limits on what the roles are going to be. And I think that's you know that's the biggest thing Siakam flashed, and that confidence came back pretty quickly. Where by the end of those 34 games starting, you know there was his head hanging sometimes when he was getting that Louis that Louis Scola six minutes to start yep. each half, and then you get the hook. And then by the time, you know, his 905 time was done, you know, the chess was back out and he was calling for the ball in key situations and he was yelling at Bruno and calling him some unkind words <laughs> to try to fire him up. And um, so you saw that come back as the, as he started to have success. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And, you know, this is one thing that you notice a lot with guys, but guys in the NBA, when they go down to the G League, like you just see like an entire different side usually come out. Like, And when you watch some of the, like when you saw what Pascal did at the NBA level in that year, his role was just so different than when he, if you watch some of the highlights, go back and watch like, um, I mean, I don't know, just a weird recommendation, but look, listen, everyone's under quarantine. Um, yeah, go online, go watch the 2017 uh, Pascal Siakam <laughs> D League finals mix, all right, the highlight mix. He was doing some of the same stuff he was doing now. The spin move, you know, like handling the ball, attacking middle of the floor, explosive finisher and stuff like that. Like it was yeah. it was really impressive. And you were seeing some stuff there that you weren't necessarily seeing. Uh, he wins, you know, uh, D-League MVP. You know, it's, 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 it's a great time, stuff like that. But for the most part, rookie year, kind of quiet for Pascal. Really where it got going was same year as Fred, really, was the bench mob. And, um, you know, it was a little strange because I didn't, think his game was going to translate as much to what the Raptors needed a lot of because they need a lot of three-point shooting and stuff like that but um, what that year really showed me was just like the playmaking and the fact that he was really getting comfortable with um, handling the ball triple handoffs making a move stuff like that yeah it was really interesting and um, you know he started really flashing some signs in that season um, what, 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 what stood out the most to you about Pascal on that bench bob year? Yeah, the, the playmaking is a big thing. And I think, you know, I think as they, we talked about kind of Nick nursifying the, the second unit offense that year. And part of that was the, the transition game was such a deadly weapon for that bench mob because right. they were so good defensively and because they couldn't really score in the half court that well. Where, you know, when you get two point guards and Pascal flying up and down the court, uh, that makes for some, some easy offense. But I think your point about the playmaking is right. You know, he had 
one game early in the year where he had five assists when they just like blew out the Knicks and like toward the end of the game they were kind of like yeah you know let's let's pass let Pascal run some of the offense here and then later in the year he had a six assist game in a big blowout against Detroit and then he had six assists uh in another blowout so Mm -hmm. you kind of started to see there were these games where once the game was in hand instead of just running out to you know running out your your bench unit to just kill out the clock or whatever they were making a concerted effort over time to put the ball on pascal's hands more in the half court too and he was running those pick and rolls and dribble handoffs and things like that so obviously that was an overwhelmingly positive season for him overall but yeah i think that's the skill where you know you look at the last chunk of the season and you know what here i'll look it up in one say over the last 24 games he's averaging two and a half assists per game and this is a guy who to that point had mostly been like a play finisher and a transition guy so i think uh you know and we saw little glimpses of the the spin move and stuff like that that year um but it was really just a comfort level with the ball in his hands and it's not obviously running in transition off of a off of a stop is not the same as operating in the half court but your comfort level doing those things and how your handle looks is probably going to translate with that stuff. Um, now, obviously, that season, the the other thing that stood out was that it was one of the worst three-point shooting seasons yeah. in NBA history, oh, 29 for 132. But I think it was encouraging, too, you know, that there was no point at which they told him to stop taking those or he shied away from taking them, which right. was, you know, it was painful sometimes in some weeks and some months. But obviously, yeah. you know, you look at where he went after that, that was a necessary part of the development, too. I think... It was like maybe January of that month of that season, but he had a whole month where he shot like one for twenty-seven from three. <laughs> that's uh, that's tough, man. Uh, yeah, but no. Generally speaking, like a really good year. Like I thought he, you know, even on top of all this stuff, like some small stuff, like the playmaking. He, you know, him and uh, Jakob Pertl had a really good two-man game together. Uh, I made a YouTube compilation of them just like assisting each other. Um, you know, he, I thought defensively that year also really showed what he could do too, just because yeah. he was able to sort of really like be the kind of pass guy that you see today with like filling all these gaps, uh, making a lot of help rotations and stuff like that. He was impressive. I even thought like, oh, going into the playoffs, yeah, we're going to play the Cavs, fine. You know what? Pascal's probably our LeBron defender, like, you know, whatever. Didn't really work out that way, whatever. Um, Oops. But yeah, I mean, the, the only strange thing about his sophomore year that I, didn't find that impressive was that he kind of was not impressive in the playoffs like uh obviously last year pascal was played a big role in the, the championship team but you know in that playoff run he just he was struggling with foul trouble all the time i remember him getting like you know outplayed by mike scott and and, and a little by markeith morris and then in the Cavs series really didn't do that much you know um and so that concerned me a little bit but realistically like that was his first taste of the playoffs he his role was a hustle guy hustle guys in the playoffs generally don't do that well no offense you know plus plus two like we talked about with fred like you lost the bench mob right like fred wasn't playing and then you can't play a five-man bench unit Mm -hmm. and i think we talked about earlier like fred's third year where for some guys the comfort level of that role certainty and the chemistry of who you're playing with is an important factor when you're so early on in your career and you know that was kind of gone and then yeah i mean yeah there were a lot of guys who didn't play super well in that play in the playoffs that year. Yeah, I was gonna say. Uh, yeah, I, I still have some of nightmares about Serge Ibaka getting stripped by uh, Kyle Korver at half court. That's one of the most uh, one of the lowest moments I had as a Raptor fan. All right, so last season defensive Pascal. stopper Kyle Korver though. Oh my god! Yeah, we kept thinking uh, Serge was going to be the Kevin Love stopper too. That also did not work out. Uh, but it also wasn't CJ Miles either. Um, so last season, uh, 
you know, coming into the year, again, so Pascal has an incredible season. He's most improved. He goes in the, you know, eventually becomes a second option. But coming into the year, it wasn't even clear that he was going to be the starting power forward. Like, he had to battle out with OG um, throughout the course of training camp and preseason and stuff like that. And OG had a tough year, so, you know, it wasn't as much competition as uh, you would think. But still, like, Pascal wins that spot, and he literally just takes it and runs with it. Like, I... Is one of the most impressive, most improved seasons because you can see the improvement throughout the actual course of the year. Like Pascal Siakam set his career high in scoring seven different times in one year, culminating with forty-four against Washington. Like, um, yeah, like so for you, I guess. Like my question was like, you know, when were you sort of comfortable and sort of um, assured that Pascal was going to be at least in terms of offense, kind of like that second option? Yeah, I mean, I, I wrote a thing, I sat down with him in January and kind of wrote the, like, a pre-All-Star, like, okay, this guy's probably the most improved, what's at the root of this and stuff, and, you know, it was, I don't know, I don't have a good answer, like, like I, I tend to be pretty slow to come around on, like, three-point sample, like, I wanted to see a good sample of Pascal knocking down those corner threes before I was right. like, okay, he can hit that corner three. I was probably... Um, like I, I was probably more encouraged than than average with the playmaking and stuff because I thought the playmaking that we'd seen late in 2017 2018 was carrying over and he was able to you know obviously some of a lot of his success was the games that Kawhi sat but even when Kawhi was playing he could kind of attack a broken down defense and get a dump off or a kick out or whatever um, you know that's something that stagnated a little bit this year but I think that that stuff was there and then I don't know, it was probably mid-season before I was like, this is legitimate and not just like a really hot start. Mm-hmm. Um, the three-point shooting is there. Obviously, the spin move is something that like we had all come to kind of get familiar with at that point. Um, but it takes a while, right? Like you, you have to give it some time for the player to succeed and then the opponents to start adjusting to that and then see how that plays out. Um, you know, the benefit of having Kawhi Leonard around was that teams couldn't really sell out to stop Siakam all the time. Um, and then I think the big one was, I forget what game it was, but he hit the game winner where they basically let him ISO Phoenix. at the end of the game, right, Phoenix? Yeah, it was an that's, ugly, ugly game. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it had to and, end on a game winner against Phoenix. Yeah, and, like, that's later in the season. Like, that was January 17th, so that's probably later in the season than I actually think I, I started to. Like, he had he had some monster games leading up to that Phoenix game, too. Yeah. Um, but that moment is kind of where it's like, okay, like, he has the confidence to do that, and the team has the confidence in him, and, and he has that in his bag, so... Um, I don't know, man. It was kind of a slow burn over the course of the year. But, yeah, it was around, you know, it was in January where I already started writing, this guy's the most improved player, and this is a crazy development story kind of thing. Yeah. No, I mean, he he had some really good games throughout that course of that year. I think the one that was eye-opening for me was um, late November. The Raptors hosted Golden State, which I thought was actually the regular season game of the year. Uh, It was the Raptors prevailing in overtime by a score of 131 to 128. Uh, kind of a finals preview. Um, Kevin Durant played that game. I think I don't know. Steph was uh, Steph was out for this one, um, but they had Clay and, and Katie. And Katie went out for fifty-one against Kawhi, who had uh, thirty-seven. But Pascal was really, really good in this game. He had twenty-six points. He had two rebounds and assists. He, he had twenty-six points on eight of ten shooting with three of four from three. Got to the foul line eight times. You know, and he was just doing things that just like I mean he. It, it was really impressive that stretch where I think three different Raptors had blocked Kevin Durant in the first quarter. <laughs> Pascal was one of them, and I've never seen Pascal, uh, um, you know, uh, KD block on his jumper before. But uh, it was just really impressive. Anyway, so yeah, Pascal really 
you know, he had a lot of coming up moments uh, in that year. He wins most improved player. Honestly, there was a little bit of debate, you know, at the end of the year because, you know, you got to drum up some, you know, um, discussion around awards. And so it was like, maybe it's D'Angelo Russell who's doing a nice thing with the Nets, whatever. But Pascal ends up winning it by a landslide. Man, uh, that could you imagine how that would look <laughs> afterward if if uh, if Russell had won? Like, even just looking yeah. at it right now. Yeah. Guy's, guy's been traded twice since then. I was like, Russell's... He's good, and he did improve, kind of. But like, I mean, I mean, it's not. Pascal went from seven points a game to seventeen points, and then yeah, I mean, you know, I think throughout the playoffs, like that was really impressive when you think back on it. I mean, he was really the number two option, and, and especially for someone who you know had improved this game so recently, had um, you know just stepped into that role later, so early in his career. Like the fact that he did that is obviously Kawhi was phenomenal, but um, you know, if you look at it, just like. Kawhi plus Pascal Siakam's points, like they had as many points in their playoff run uh, last year as Scottie Pippen, Michael Jordan ever had, which is like nuts, man. Um, yeah, so Pascal in, in against Orlando, he was legitimately elite. I thought twenty three points per game, eight rebounds, three assists, fifty three percent shooting. That game three that he had uh, when Kawhi was sick and he had that flu game and he shot really poorly. Pascal, you know, ended up kind of closing that game out. He had a spin move against Evan Fournier that kind of sealed it. And game three was actually pretty important because it was the pivotal, like, swing game. There was only 1-1 at the time. Um, and then, you know, really where he struggled was kind of against Embiid. He only shot 44% in that Sixers series. He averaged 19, but 44 was kind of low. And then against the Bucks, where he averaged 14 points per game on 40% shooting. Um, but then he closed out strong in the finals, where he averaged 28-4 and four on 50% shooting. Yeah, and this this is kind of what I meant when I said earlier that, you know, sometimes development isn't linear and sometimes it's not linear within a season or within a series, right? Mm-hmm. And we saw, you know, Siakam go, he starts as a rookie and then has to take a step back and go to the G League. And then he's great with the bench mob, but he also has one of the worst three-point shooting seasons of all time. And that's kind of a step back and then he's not very good in the playoffs. And then he has his most improved player season and then, oh, teams are game planning for you uh, for five, six games at a time. And kind of with, not not uniformly within each series, but I feel like he struggled a little bit and then got better a couple times during mm-hmm. the course of the the playoffs. And obviously that's what's played out this season. But I think you know I think that's natural. I think I don't think anyone ahead of the season and certainly back like earlier in his career would have thought he would have been in the the spot to be the team's number two scorer in a finals run. So um, you know it was. It's the luxury of having Kawhi Leonard on your team and yeah, for sure. you know being as good as they were that you could watch him go through those bumps and still not like like obviously there were huge stresses in the playoffs but I don't think at any point anyone was like oh Pascal Siakam is the reason that the Raptors aren't going to beat the Philadelphia 76ers in in fact if I'm remembering right Pascal's injury made everyone worry that they were going to lose oh the 76ers God. um but yeah <sighs> I think you know I think that's one of the best playoff runs in terms of like watching a guy grow on the job and like really kind of come into his own at the right time by the time the golden state series came around yeah i mean i mean you could say what if about so many moments in the uh in the playoff and in the title team but man if pascal doesn't have this like breakout year i don't even know what happens with the team you know yeah i mean mean, if you want to get more (laughs) granular than that too like if pascal doesn't have the game one he has against golden state because like lowry Lowry wasn't that good and and Kawhi leonard was kind of iffy not iffy he was iffy by leonard standards yeah doubling him super hard yeah 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 and game one he has what 32 points on like 15 of 17 shooting against draymond wild yeah wild pretty good stuff (laughs) for your first finals game man 
And of course, Game Six, he closes it out, twenty six points. Uh, I still think it's super, you know, illuminating that, you know, in that one point game, the Raptors call timeout. They come out of that play and they run a Kyle Lowry Pascal Siakam pick and roll. Lowry slips to Siakam. Draymond lunges and reaches and just was nowhere close. And Siakam kind of euro steps him, goes in for the little floater and, and ends up hitting it. And that was the last basket of the uh, 2019 playoffs. So shout out Pascal. Yeah. And I, I think really the best part about this is that you know, okay, so Kawhi is left, but in that you know, uh, playoff run, you really got to learn so much about who you are as a player when the top teams in the NBA with the best players are gearing up specifically to stop you. And I think that really did help sort of inform what Pascal needed to improve upon, you know, in, in the offseason. Um, because, you know, when you th- when you thought about the Bucks series, what, what that successful was they put a center on him, they dared him to shoot, they took away the corner, made him play at the top of the floor, he couldn't really do much with it. Same thing with Embiid. And I think that's where, you know, that was really helpful and instructive because, you know, that is exactly what Siakam worked on in the offseason. And, you know, we don't have the playoffs to see if it was going to translate at the highest level this year. And, and hopefully they come back. But um, at least in the regular season, this season, we saw Pascal take that next step in terms of just, like, redesigning his entire game. That's the thing. When he was most improved... And as Damar said, like, there's an argument to be made. I don't necessarily agree with it, but there's an argument to be made that Pascal is most improved again this year just because of how much more difficult uh, his role was this year as compared to last year. Yeah, that's always the toughest thing with the most improved award is that, you know, his leap was much bigger last year, but it's a tougher and more important leap that he's trying to take this year. And I, I'm with you. I don't think he's a most improved, like, I don't think he, he's the most improved player. Um, but especially because like his efficiency has gone down and stuff like that. But I think if you're looking at long term, who Pascal Siakam is going to be, you know, even just adding the threat of that pull up above the break three, and like the mid range game isn't really there yet. I think both of us wrote about heading into the season that like, hey, heads up, he's probably going to have to take more mid range shots just because like that's what's going to be there sometimes when a defense is selling out to stop you. Uh, but the threat of that pull up three is huge for mm-hmm. for how teams are going to guard him in a playoff series and and i think it does probably take away some of the bigs who can guard him you know i still think miami would put bam on him probably but i don't know you know i I certainly don't think you're going to risk like a brooke lopez on him anymore yeah um so i think that's a pretty fundamental uh, skill addition for him now other parts of his game have not come along as smoothly but like overall you have to be pretty overwhelmingly impressed with a guy taking another leap this big and, and you know pushing almost 30 percent usage and, and being pretty good in that role it's they yeah. asked an awful lot of them this year yeah no they really did man and i thought this, the way he started the year was just like eye-opening to me like first off he opens the, the season on ring night with 34 points and 18 rebounds just incredible i remember at the time it was like right after he signed that max contract extension people were like oh is he, is he really a max player and it's like yo come on what are we doing and then, you know, in that first 27 games before he ends up suffering that groin injury against Detroit, which kind of, like, uh, really dampened his year a little bit. But he was averaging 25 points, 8 rebounds a game, 4 assists, with the true shooting percentage around 58% uh, when that injury was happening. Like, he was really good to start the year, especially when Kyle went down as well as Serge went down. Pascal and Fred, the two of them leading the team, you know, Pascal had to handle the ball a little bit more, obviously, you know, no clear third string point guard and yeah he was really impressive and I just thought that look for a guy to you know in his in most improved season 
he really thrived along the baseline, whether that was the corner three, whether that was in the post, whether that was going to the rim. Like, it was mostly, uh, you know, that's where he thrived as, as a player. And this season, he's had to operate entirely differently. He doesn't get that much corner threes anymore. Um, and he has to be at the top of the floor. He has to operate. He has to, you know, run more pick and roll than he's ever done in his life. Like, it's just, it's impressive to me. And so, um, you know, who knows if the season gets restarted or not. But, you know, I think... Well, I mean, first off, would he be on an NBA All NBA team for you, based on what he's done so far this year? He's like he's right on the fringe for third team. Like I don't think we have to discuss really second team or first team the yeah, ones yeah. that would escalate his contract. I think that there's like four or five forwards who have a case for that third team spot. I wouldn't argue with him being in there. Probably, like if we're if we're taking away. You know, the way people are going to vote on this, they're going to look at the overall thing. I don't think people are going to make room for the fact that Siakam was growing into this role. And I think if you take away that, then he probably doesn't make it in. But if you have an appreciation for, you know, the amount of learning on the job and just the leap that he's taking, then, yeah, you could put him on you could put him on your third team. Um, You know, I think I think if we saw the ballots right now, I probably don't think he gets on. I think he probably just misses. Just like the efficiency took too big of a dip from a true shooting percentage standpoint. And like the defense hasn't been quite as good as last year and the assist rate hasn't come along. It's just you could you could make small nitpicks. Yeah. um, Where like but if you're watching it every day and you're seeing the the difficulty of this roll jump, obviously the appreciation level for it um, is significantly higher. So, yeah, uh, for sure. But I mean, you know, look, I don't have a vote, so I haven't looked at in in detail who's uh, you know who would be ahead of him or or behind him or whatever. But yeah. um, I think he's he's got a fringe case for thirteen. Um, I'll just say this: like, obviously, yeah, I don't I don't think he's gonna be uh, one of the top four. Uh, if you, like, you got you know LeBron and Giannis first team. You got Kawhi and AD second team. Maybe AD goes to center, but I doubt it. He's played power forward most of the year. The Lakers like to play big. Um, and so I think the top four are kind of set. But, yeah, I mean, aside from that, I don't I don't know, man. He's There's a group there for sure. Like, I think Tatum, she got a lot of love for it. Um, you know, there's other players. But, I mean, I don't know, man. I mean, I think what's really going to work in Pascal's favor in terms of just, like, the, the drop deficiency and things like that that you mentioned is just, like, the Raptors are third in the NBA. That's going to yeah, be a really a positive factor. factor. Yeah, and if they're not going to put Kyle on the All NBA guard team, which I think that's more of a long shot, even though I think Kyle really has a discussion for that as well. Um, yeah, I think I think Pascal. Honestly, my my prediction is Pascal makes thirteen All NBA. Yeah, I wouldn't close. argue with it. That's yeah. that's for sure. He's I, uh... he's basically had a very similar year as Blake Griffin did last year statistically, and it's sort of as a rule too, as sort of that uh, power, you know, playmaking power forward type. Uh, of course, Blake Griffin did it for like a Pistons team that was eighth seed, uh, and the Raptors overall have better talent, and obviously they're second seed. But you know, Blake, Blake Griffin had a thirteen All NBA last year, so yeah, Blake Griffin's really good too, or yeah. was really good. Rest in peace. Okay. It's, uh, I mean, I don't know that those knees are coming back. So <laughs> yeah, I, that's a shame. Really, I, I really like Blake Griffin's career. Yeah, me too, man. Yeah. Yeah, he was. He was and, and, like, spending a couple years in Detroit, it's like, man, this guy's really going to be underappreciated. Yeah, yeah. No, he went all out last year, and then he burned himself out. It's, it's, it's a shame. It's a shame. I guess I guess the big thing with Siakam, if we're projecting forward, is, like, the, the finishing's got to come back a little bit. Not that mm-hmm. he's not finishing well at the rim, but he's gotten to the rim 
a lot less this year. Um, he went from taking 46% of his shots at the rim to 40% to 29% over three years. Yeah. And if you finish at a 70% rate at the rim, that's a lot of efficient buckets that you've lost. And, like, his free throw rate hasn't come up with that. So, um, you know, that's, that's I think, the next step of him. You talked about yeah. kind of how year two he had this kind of – or, sorry, year three he had kind of this – um, horizontal baseline oriented game and now he's got kind of this vertical top to bottom game and now you got to try to blend those together and just you know even like the floater range stuff that he normally feasts on he wasn't as good at this year i think i don't think n- any of that is like a point of concern i think it's just a matter of putting the whole package together now and kind of just sharpening those reads a little bit of when you go into avoid contact versus invite contact and, and things like that yeah and it's also part of like managing energy and stuff like it's just way easier to like be the energy kind of type player, especially earlier in his career, bench mob season, last season. This year, like it's just so much more bodies on him, so many more people he has to beat. Everyone's focused on him a little bit more. He has to play more minutes, has to do more. Like it's just you could tell, like there was a bit of a grind and a, and a wear and tear on him as the year went on, which is again gonna come when this is your first run as the number one guy. Um to, to cap off the segment on Pascal, uh, I just wanted to focus on a couple other quotes that have, that have come out. Uh, you know, I think Pascal, one of the things for him personally that I think he really sees as a responsibility is I think he feels a lot of responsibility um, to sort of change a lot of stereotypes about African players. And I think that mm-hmm. even kind of directly, you know, leads to the nickname, the peace skills kind of thing, because, you know, um, you know, Siakam has said... Uh, Quote, Masai and I have always had this conversation about making sure we change the culture. This is bigger than me. It's the first time I started playing basketball, I was a big man no matter what. I was tall. That's what you are. I've always wanted to have the skills. I always wanted to work on these things. Now I can show kids and people from Africa that, hey, you can be more than a big man. You can have all the tools. And I think that's really cool because, again, like, just because, I mean, there's always been a lot of great African big men to have come out. Obviously, Hakeem, you know, uh, I guess Siakam technically is a big uh, and be you know many others Dikembe, um, but yeah, for Pascal, he's kind of revolutionary in that way because you just don't see a lot of great you know African guards or even African wings, and for Pascal to you know have the game that he has, it really is kind of game changing because it could really lead to sort of a next generation, a next wave of you know players coming from that continent. Yeah, and I think it's, you know, I think obviously that's a great example to set. And I think it's also a good lesson to learn for the NBA at large of, like, I think too often we're guilty of boxing guys in before they're anywhere near fully developed, right? Mm-hmm. And it's like for for Siakam to come in and you say, yeah, he could be this energy big type, you know, maybe he could be a bow outlaw type, a transition threat, whatever. It's fine to have those expectations and, and to have that as kind of a baseline. But thankfully, the Raptors didn't develop him as if that's the only thing he could be, right? They didn't right. only play him in that role. The 905 afforded him the chance to expand that. And I think I think that's something the Raptors have done well of, is not boxing guys in and kind of seeing what they can do um, in a larger development picture. So I think that, yeah, it's it's obviously a great example to, um, to, to people back in Africa that he wants to set. And I think it's a good lesson that the Raptors have made good use of. And, and I think maybe, you know, other teams will start to catch up on too of like, don't let what a player is at this moment determine what he can be, right? It's like Masai, when I wrote about um, Pascal as a most improved player in January 2019, and I kind of was talking to him about some of this stuff and what drives him and, you know, his dad and and being an influence in Africa and stuff. Mm -hmm. And he said that so many of his conversations with Masai over the years had come down to basically the question of why not? Like, why, why can't you be a guy that has the ball in his hand in transition? Why can't you be a guy 
that runs pick and roll even though you're a big man and stuff like that so a lot of it came back to just why not and i think that 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 is a lot of Masai's worldview, um, especially a, as it pertains to the continent. And then I think it's a lot of Pascal's worldview too. So I think they're they're a good match in that sense. And I think it's you know it's a good way to be as a person. I think it's a smart way to try to develop basketball players too. Yeah, for sure. Um, and you can tell he has he has tons of pride. You know him and Masai especially um, have especially see that eye to eye kind of thing. You know in terms of just like the the game being bigger than basketball. And your career is bigger than basketball. It's also the impact you can make and the doors you can open for other people. So uh, I've always really respected that part about Pascal. And I also just thought that, like, you know, looking at his entire story, like, um, you know, he's just, for a guy who's at that level, especially in terms of that caliber of player, he doesn't really carry himself with the kind of attitude, not even just attitude, but just, like, um, the overconfidence and sort of the... um, the outsized personality that most superstars come with, right? I think Pascal really is, you know, still to his core, a very humble guy, very willing, a team player. Um, I don't know. It's just something about his personality. Do you know what I'm talking about? Where he's just like, it's not, it's, it's, it's unique. It really is. He's, you know. Yeah. I think it's a combination of, you know, not taking anything for granted. And then I think there's probably like some level of self-satisfaction and being and having made it like this, despite people telling you, you kind of can't, but like not also the, like the humility is not the right word, but to not like, like to have that influence your confidence, but not put a chip on your shoulder outwardly, you know, like right, obviously yeah. in the gym, he's got a chip on your shoulder, but that's a hard thing to do to have something drive you and you feel incredibly proud about, you know, having done it and proven it. Um, and that that balance between you know that making you very confident but not arrogant mm-hmm. is a is a tough balance I think and I think you know I think it comes down to he's like he strikes me as a pretty good person and a yeah. person that people like to be around and stuff so um, you know I think that's probably just a part of his nature yeah for sure and it's it's like it's super cool that you know he's surrounded you know by his brothers and stuff like that and he's obviously been very close with his family you know he lost his father in the car crash and uh, you know that part is also very well chronicled. Um, but, you know, the way he's close with his family and stuff like that, too, is, is just really cool. You know, like, I wish, you know, I wish I could be working with my brother all the time and stuff like that. But I also don't want him to go into sports media, you know, so. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm fine. I'm fine not working closely with my brothers. It's... Yeah, so. It's all right. So there you go. I mean, t- the two guys from 2016 that uh, have really gone from kind of fringe guys to um, – becoming sort of the future of the Raptors. Obviously, you know, Fred has to re-sign and stuff like that and everything else. But, um, yeah, you know, like, the Raptors have been incredibly blessed to have these two. So Now, uh, do you want to break down uh, what happened with EJ Singler and Drew Crawford and stuff since then, too? Or? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Hit me, <laughs> hit me. What happened, to, uh, what happened to Danny Crawford's son? Yeah, I don't know. I know EJ was playing Portugal for a little bit. but Okay, all right. Maybe, yeah. uh, maybe you could teach Nick Nurse some uh, Portuguese. There you go. Yeah. yeah. The best way to learn Portuguese is to play some pickup soccer. You'll you'll learn all the swear words very quickly. Yeah, I mean my my like where I'm from, it's a heavy Portuguese population in Cambridge, and my high school was like probably like sixty to seventy percent Portuguese. So I at oh, least yeah? knew like Portuguese curse words and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I won't say on the podcast, but uh, no, I'll, I'll tell it to you after the call. Like when Br- when Bruno first got here, I would ask him like, "Hey, how are you? Like, how was the game?" Kind of stuff. Oh, okay. Well, that's pretty good. It, well, but and, and it's wow. funny. He would al- he would always like tease me. About how bad my Portuguese was, and I wanted to say back to him, like it's the same level as your English, man. That's, I'm I'm trying here. Wow, uh, wow, oh wow. Um, 
I'm not I thought, very good I thought, at second languages. So I'm not a. Do you think Pas- I, don't have, I don't have that. Do you think Pascal also chirped him in uh, Portuguese? Uh, no, Pascal chirped him in English. Yeah, well, <laughs> I, but, well, unfortunately, at that point, Bruno understood English quite well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think he would have. I think that would have been one of the first words he picked up anyway. So yeah, fair enough, fair enough. Um, yeah. So Blake, thanks for coming on the podcast. Seriously, thanks for devoting two hours. Uh, what are you going to do with the rest of your day? Now that uh, I don't know, man. I got to finish up this article I was writing before uh, before this started, and then I'll probably work out or something, and then okay. probably stare into the void and wait to restart the whole thing over again tomorrow. And you know, yeah. normal quarantine life. Yikes! Yeah, all right, it's all right, man. It'll be good. How yeah, are, was, what about you? Uh, I got a work call. I got to produce this podcast, and then um, probably gonna go for a bike ride. I went for like a two hour bike ride. That was really nice. It's yeah. actually because like I. Biking is probably like the only way I feel completely safe going outside because you can really avoid people, especially at night. Like I went for like a two-hour bike ride on Saturday. Like I, I live like uh, in the junction, and I bike to like Bay Bloor and then came back and stuff. You got like your reflectors and stuff on though, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. I actually even wore a backwards hat, which was. I was going to ask if they make helmets big enough, but I guess that's asking too much. They definitely don't. I actually went into uh, try to get a helmet once, and they were like, yeah, we, we they, they tried like four or five on, and they are like, you know what? You just have an Asian head shape, and we don't have Asian helmets. And I was like, what does that mean? But then I looked it they, up, and apparently... Wait, they actually said that? Yeah, and I, I was like, yo, what does this mean? I was like, I was almost, almost slightly offended, but then I looked it up, and it's like, it's really true. There's like, apparently it's just like the shape of the skull. It's like, one's more round, and one's more oblong. And so All it right. wouldn't really fit. Uh, anyway, I don't know. That was their explanation. Also, they were like, your head's big as hell. Like, I don't, I don't know what to do, man. Yeah, that, that explanation makes sense to me. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, don't know, I don't know about your, your background playing into it, but the size of that thing, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I looked it up, and apparently it's, it's real. So, um, yeah. So <laughs> I hope everyone out there stays safe, and especially if you're in a, a position to do so, stay home. Um, you know, be, be careful. Take this thing very seriously. And, you know, while you're home, make sure you read everything Blake writes and uh, listen to Raptors Reasonablists. Anything else to plug, Blake? No, man. The, the Athletic, all that said. The Athletic has 90-day free trials if you've ever, like, wanted to check the stuff out and not wanted to commit. 90-day um, free trials right now, so. Yeah. There you, you can go. check that out, finally. You hear read, that? Uh, read about a bunch of old-school stuff because there's nothing new going on. You hear that, Alex? It's, it's free for 90 days. Uh, it's, it's time to hop on, man. Yeah, Alex and I were joking that we were going to do, like, one of those IG Live rapper battles and producer battles, oh, and and we would just, please. like, we are just going to read our articles back and forth to each other, <laughs> but, like, Alex is going to come with drops uh, of, like, like asking Siri to sign into The Athletic, but he uses your login and stuff. <laughs> yeah, no, it's been, it's honestly been, like, four years of him using, because I, I, I signed up to The Athletic because of you, because I was like, I got to read Blake. So I yeah, signed up immediately. But. Are you going to cut this from the podcast, or am I going to record this later? And no, 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 no. You can you can take this to your bosses and uh, run with it. You know. Um, yeah. But yeah, that's that's how long Alex has been mooching. So uh, thanks everyone for listening. Uh, thanks to Blake again, super generous with his time. And uh, yeah, I'll be back next week with another super in depth uh, episode on another Raptors personality. I don't know who it is yet, but um, it's probably going to be like Masai or something like that. So. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc., 